It's in Genesis, of course, uh, chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6. So make sure you're there, and we'll do the whole chapter. And um, <clears throat> so Genesis, by the way, I've called the sermon God's Wrath, God's Grace. And if you know anything about chapter 6, you'd know why, but it'll be fairly obvious. Um, Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses are enough to give anybody a headache. <laughs> uh, there, uh, Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is one of the most demanding passages in the book of Genesis. Every verse is a source of exegetical difficulty. But, quite frankly, after spending an awful lot of time, I've taught this before, this is the third time actually through Genesis for me, um, I don't really think it's that difficult, but there's so many questions to be answered, and so we'll try to do the best we can. We're going to start with me reading uh, the first uh, number of verses. I guess I'll read uh, the first seven verses, and then we'll start to exegete them from there and go to the end of the passage. So follow in your Bibles. It says, in my version, it says, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them. Now, uh, let me just use a word here. Uh, whatever translation you may have, it just might say, when men began to increase in number on the earth. And the reason I'm using the word human beings instead of men is because the word for men here means male and female. And we sort of lost that with all of the confusion of the way they're trying to use language today. And so... <clears throat> when human beings, when men and women, that's a better way to say it, when men and women began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, then verse 2, the sons of God, the word for God here is Elohim, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And then... The Lord said, my spirit, he was pretty upset about this, will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, that means they're going to die, and their days will be 120 years. I don't believe that's how old they'll be, but we'll understand that as we go on in a little bit. And then in verse 4, it says, the Nephilim, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, <clears throat> Some Bibles even have, instead of Nephilim, the words giants, or they'll have a footnote say the word means giants, and it does mean giants, but it means a lot of other things. And so I did as deep a dive as I could, and uh, not being an expert in Hebrew, but I've got good Bible programs, and uh, I would just say this, and you'll understand as we go through why I'm doing this. Rather than say the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, I would say this, just to give you an idea, and some of you will already know what I'm, why I'm doing it, and others of you won't. Uh, the tyrants, I would call them tyrants. So the tyrants were on the earth in those days. What was that? Yeah. Well, actually, you're not far off, and, and we'll have a word for that too. Yeah, the Nephilim, the tyrant. Maybe they're big tyrants, but they're tyrants. 
were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, these tyrants, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. <clears throat> the Lord regretted, this is a terrible sentence, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. It means grieved. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. What a statement. Now, one of the problems with a passage like this is that we spend so much time on everyone's opinion about who the Nephilim were or whether angels had sex with humans or what the 120 years represents that we completely miss the point, the main point of the passage. And that's what I really want to get across, the main point of the passage. We are studying, you'll remember this if you've been here at all, uh, the Toledoth of Seth, the Toledoth, the ancestry. So we're, we're studying Seth's uh, Ancestry.com, the ancestral line of Adam and Eve through their son, Seth. This passage is still part of that study and doesn't end until we read about the Toledoth, the ancestry of Noah. And then when we hear the word Noah we immediately think of a flood and start asking even more questions. Like, how could Noah get all those animals in the ark? Or was the flood universal? Or where's the ark today? Well, yes, the flood is universal. And the ark is in Kentucky. <laughs> That's where it is today. And... Uh, <clears throat> Now, many, many of you know that because you've been there and seen the ark, and we'll see a little bit more of it in a moment because some of you have visited it. So the reason Moses recorded these events was uh, to, to be a picture of what life was like over 100 years before the judgment, the flood. It is described in the New Testament to warn us of the second coming of Jesus Christ which also includes judgment. So in Matthew 24 uh, and Mark tw uh, Luke 21 and uh, uh, the 11th chapter of the book of Mark, uh, we have a picture of, uh, of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Here's just a few words from it. And these are the words of Jesus talking to his disciples. As... It was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of me, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man. He was talking about himself, his second coming. Now, they wouldn't have understood that at that point in time, but they do later. For in the days before the flood, Noah's flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and given a marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And then Jesus said this, this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. This is how it will be at the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
uh, and it'll be pretty sudden. So Genesis is used as an illustration, even by the Apostle Peter, to warn us today of the coming judgment. And in a way, Peter is the second Noah. So here's what Peter says. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. This is in, it's on the screen. It's in the New Living, New Living Translation. This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of the letters that he wrote, he, he says, both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, we're in the last days now, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? I mean, from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was created. Well, then he says, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water, and then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Pretty powerful scripture. So with that, we are now able to handle the controversy and investigate the condition of the culture about 120 years before the flood. So we're about to see the corruption of the human race and why judgment was, in fact, deserved. So let's start at verse 1 in Genesis chapter 6. When human beings, men and women, <clears throat> began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful. And they married, that's an important word here, it's important for us to see. They married any of them they chose. Now, we, we all want to know about the sons of God. So we start by trying to determine who the sons of God were. Benaha Elohim is how I believe is right. If you're a Hebrew scholar, you can correct my pronunciation. And Jesus was having an argument with the Pharisees. And uh, he was showing them from their own scriptures that they didn't really understand much of anything. And one uh, sentence in his explanation to them was this, Matthew twenty-two thirty: At the resurrection, he tells them, people will neither marry nor be given to marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. They won't, they won't marry or be given in marriage. Now, no, notice in verse 2, it says that these sons of God married any of these women they chose, but Jesus says they won't be married even. So some say that angels are unable to have sex, and therefore these sons of God could not have been angels. Others say that angels are always referred to as male, that's true, and the fact that they don't marry doesn't mean they can't have sex. That's ridiculous. 
at least according to me. But that overlooks how angels are described by the writer in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, it's a question with an obvious answer. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The answer is yes. Angels were direct creations of God, and they did not multiply or procreate. But, but we see, even in the New Testament, that fallen angels, we call them demons, want to possess people so they could influence them in evil ways. It's never in good ways. Now, we already know this because we spent so much time over the years talking about the spiritual warfare that's going on all of the time, that we're in a spiritual battle as Christians. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, uh, it reads, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's talking about fallen angels. And it was the unanimous view until the end of the second century, so think of when that was, until the end of the second century, that these sons of God that we read about uh, in Genesis were in fact angels. And it is true that the phrase sons of God refers to angels all through the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's the book of Job, for instance, just quoting directly from the book of Job. One day, the angels, quote, sons of God, come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the head of the fallen angels, also came with them. Now, behind many very corrupt and evil people, the influence of demons, of fallen angels, is obvious in Scripture. And again, I had to choose from several. I thought I'd use Ezekiel. Uh, uh, Ezekiel, uh, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 28, and uh, here's what God says. The word of God came to me, says the Son of Man, meaning Ezekiel, take up lament concerning the king of Tyre. So the king of Tyre was a person, but a lament concerning the king of Tyre. And so this is a person in that day, a king in that day, and say to the king of Tyre, now this tells you who he's really talking to, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now, the king of Tyre had never been in Eden, the Garden of God. Why is he talking that way? He's talking that way because behind these evil rulers are demons, fallen angels. And the king of Tyre is one case, and I could have multiplied it through the book of Daniel and lots of other places. We saw in Genesis 3 that Satan deceived Eve by possessing a serpent. So now we see fallen angels, evil angels, demons, possessing men and causing them to lust after women and Mary. Now, I use the word Mary because that's what it says in the Genesis account. And Mary for all the wrong reasons. Now, I mentioned this, as I said, I mentioned the word marriage because there was a marriage, and the men who married these women were like the serpent possessed by demons, fallen angels. A lot of time has passed here, and culturally we know 
there were mystical and demonic religions that attributed everything to small g gods and even men claiming to be gods. I'm going to read a little bit of a difficult passage, but there's a reason. I've got to, I'll tell you my motive in the middle of it. It's by Alan Ross, a, a scholar, a Hebrew scholar. In the Ugaritic legend, remember this is a legend now, of dawn and dusk, the chief god of the pantheon El seduces two human women. This union of a spirit and two humans produce dawn and dusk, who seem to have been deities associated with Venus. Thus, for the pagans, Dr. Allen writes, gods and demigods had their origins in copulations between humans and gods. And remember, this is a legend. Any superhuman or Herculean individual in in a myth, or any actual giant or powerful tyrant would suggest a divine origin to the ancient mind. In other words, that's the way people thought in this day. In the thinking of the time, the way to achieve immortality involved a divine marriage, and a whole cult arose to allow people the opportunity to engage in the quest for immortality. Ultimately, that's what this is all about. Remember, the serpent told Eve that she would not die if she ate the fruit. He was offering her earthly immortality without obedience to God. The quest for immortality continues even today. Now, I more than occasionally read books on how to extend your health span. And most of these books I can't recommend. They're written by people that believe in evolution and all this kind of stuff, but they are really good at nutrition and how to exercise, all that kind of stuff. But beneath the surface in these books, it is clear the writers are hoping to find a way to extend life indefinitely. It becomes pretty clear as you read through the books. I learn a lot of other stuff, but I'm not falling for that. Now, I am going to extend my life indefinitely, but I'm not going to use this body the whole time. Now, most of you have heard of uh, cryogenics. This fascinates me. (laughs) It's really another religion of those who are living in denial of the judgment that comes with our final breath. It is part of the quest for immortality. Let me just read you a little piece that I pulled off the internet today. Scottsdale, Arizona, October 12th. I'll just read this to you. Time and death are on pause for some people in Scottsdale, Arizona. Inside tanks filled with liquid nitrogen are the bodies and heads of 199 humans who opted to be cryopreserved in hopes of being revived in the future when science has advanced beyond what it is capable of today. Many of the patients, as Alcor Life Extension Foundation, you can write that down in case you'd want to do this, calls them, were terminally ill with cancer, ALS, or other diseases with no present-day cure. A Thai girl with brain cancer is the youngest person to be cryo-preserved at the age of two in 2015. Both her parents were doctors, 
and she had multiple brain surgeries, and nothing worked, unfortunately. So they contacted us at Max Moore, chief executive of Alcor, a nonprofit which claims to be a world leader in cryonics. And so here it is. You might want to save up. If you want your body done, it's $200,000. But if it's just your brain, it's only $80,000. I guess they are hoping that you can plant the brain in another body or something like that. It amazes me because the people that would do this would have to be really rich. And uh, it just amazes me that people would fall for this. Yes, demons are at work in the world today saying it is not true as the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 and just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. This passage in Genesis refutes any idea that there are powers stronger than our creator. The men who are claiming to be powerful are not deity. They are not eternal and they were unable to tread water for months on end until their feet sat down on some high mountain. They all died in the flood. So now look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now the word to contend here in verse 3 could be translated to protect or to shield. And Dr. Alan Ross, and he's a, I've met him, he's a first-class Hebrew scholar, he translates the passage this way. God says that his spirit will not always protect mankind in about 120 years, he would destroy them. So that's what the 120 years is about. So marriage has been corrupted, influenced by demons, and spread throughout the earth's large population. So now no one except Noah and his family will be alive in 120 years from this point. Now look at verse 4 because this is another controversy again. The Nephilim, the giants, and I remember I called them tyrants, were on the earth in those days and also afterward. So there were, the Nephilim were in those days, these tyrants, and afterwards. When the sons of God went... That's an important word to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, the phrase went is what's important here. The phrase went, and I'll go back again. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans is a sexual phrase. It's actually a picture of sexual violence. Jesus said that there would be, I already read it to you, given in marriage in the last days, and maybe he was describing the flood of sexual deviancy we see on TV or the internet or on our phones. Pornography has flooded our electronic media and captured the lives of many. One pastor friend wrote to me some time ago these words, pornography is poison wrapped in sugar coating. Researchers tell us that it is as addictive as any drug. It activates the pleasure center in your brain just like any euphoric drug. The Nephilim were not divine, just human. They were the result of these demonic so-called marriages, but these tyrants, tyrant-like people already existed 
but now they were really being multiplied because the the, the demonic influence through the the the, the so-called marriage uh, would have really impacted them. So these were the warriors of the day, the evil heroes of the day. They were full of pride and boasting and evil, doing whatever they wanted to do. And the people were either afraid of them or worshipped them. These kinds of people always exist. The leaders of Hamas could be called Nephilim. Hitler was Nephilim. Uh, we see, we see uh, but certainly he wasn't a giant. <laughs> they weren't large. But we see these type of people even after the flood. Do you remember the story of Joshua and Caleb and the ten spies? And they were sent into the land, and they were told the land was a land full of milk and honey, and it was just going to, they were going to be able to take over the land, everything, and it was just fantastic. They were told to go in and sort of reconnoiter and see where everybody was and how many people there were and where they would have to go. And they were told that no matter what they found, they, at first he wanted, they were told, please bring back some, uh, some uh, of, of the produce of the land. We want to see it. And they brought back big grape clusters and all kinds of stuff. And the, the ten of them went in, and they reconnoitered the land, and they were told by God through Moses that they would easily take over. He was giving them this land, and, and they would be able to drive those people out of the land. And so they came back, and they showed that incredible produce and admitted that it was great. But there were ten of them that finally said, no, no, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that said they could do it. Caleb was my favorite of the two because he was uh, a little older than me. But nevertheless, he was still on the go, and he wasn't giving up. And he said, give me that mountain. I just love to talk about Caleb. So they believed God. Joshua and Caleb did. But here's what it says in Numbers chapter 13. And they, these are the ten, spread among the Israelites a bad report. So this is a lie. It's a bad report, but it's a lie. So they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great side, we saw the Nephilim, these tyrants. And maybe they were big. Maybe they were giant. Maybe they were seven-foot basketball players. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Well, the Nephilim have been dead for quite a long time and wiped out. There were no Nephilim, but everybody knew the story. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. So there we have a picture of the Nephilim, and these were bad people. God was going to send in uh, those ten, the, the, the 12 spies and all, by the way, be, because they were the 12 tribes of Israel, they were going to go in and get rid of them all. So now, the Nephilim we read of in Genesis, as I said, it all died in the flood. The men in Numbers knew the story of the flood and used the word Nephilim to describe the enemy they thought they couldn't defeat. They were being influenced by demonic unbelief. God had already told them there was nothing to be afraid of when it came to the Nephilim or anyone else. It was because of people like the Nephilim that Israel was later warned against any kind of occultist activities. The occult 
will turn one away from the faith and deceive people to stop trusting in God. Be careful in feeding your sin nature with occultic or pornographic or lustful images. Your fallen nature, your sinful nature that we still have will grow stronger and stronger. It'll be a catastrophe. There are powerful religious Nephilim around today, tyrants. Have you ever wondered how someone could possibly believe what the Mormons believe? That you'll end up with your own planet in eternity? Or what the Jehovah Witnesses believe, and I could make a list? These people are demonically deceived to believe the truth is a lie and the lie is the truth. The leaders of these groups, Nephilim, are powerful. Think of Islam. Islam. I mean, talk about deception. Imagine a young man or woman strapping on powerful explosives and walking into a crowd and blowing themselves up to obtain a promise of something eternal that's lustful, by the way, that is not true. Or what about October 7th, where young men rape defenseless women and kill children in their beds and kidnap babies and hide under hospitals using innocent people as human shields? Tell me that isn't demonic. So these sons of God influence people in evil, lustful ways, producing more Nephilim who were possessed and deceived, controlled by demonic forces. The flood would prove their deception and mortality. Ross again says, children of these marriages were not God kings, despite what people thought or said, though they were heroes and famous warriors. They were flesh and would all die in due course like the rest of the human race. When God would judge the world, no giant, no false deity, no human would have any power to resist. God simply allotted the time of grace and then brought the end. The 120 years, the time before the flood, is a time of grace. It was an opportunity even to walk with God so that one can enjoy Him forever. Now look at verse 5. The Lord saw, this is so sad, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Great, every inclination, only evil continually. That's what God saw. What a contrast if we're studying through Genesis, and we went back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where it reads, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. You see, this is a picture of what theologians call today total depravity. The word for every inclination is a word, this is really interesting, is a word that describes a potter forming or molding a pot. Human beings, by every thought of their minds, of our minds, are forming or are molding Lives of evil in this case, lust and violence. But sadly, now to the point of no return. 
God made us. He, he gifted us of birth. He capacitated us with intelligence, creativity, the ability to love, the capacity to have intimacy with God. But mankind disobeyed, murdered. We already saw the first murder. Lusted until all thought of God's goodness was obliterated. Nothing good could come of what was happening, of what God was seeing. Therefore, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Uh, you could say his heart, he was full of grief. The word grief would be a good translation in there. Only those who really love experience grief. We could paraphrase the sentence to say, God experienced intense emotions of pain and rage and anguish, wishing he hadn't created human beings. This is a, is a verbal anthropomorphism. You think an anthropomorphism? Mean? It's just a fancy way of saying that Moses was inspired by God's Spirit to help us picture how God feels about his creation, about us, in a way we can understand with our limited human knowledge. You see, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. But we do change. We have been given a will. We can choose to live for our Creator or decide to try and create our own lives without consideration of He who made us. That is the freedom God has given us. And as we read through the Bible, we soon learn just how dangerous and devastating that freedom can be. The word is sowing and reaping. If you're a parent who has a wayward son or daughter or husband or wife or any relative, you know the pain being portrayed, how discouraging, how incredibly sad. So it is not hard to relate to what is being communicated about the heart of God in this passage. God loves his creation. God sent his son to die for us, his creatures. But injustice must be dealt with. So God decides to start over. I'm amazed he did so. Frankly, I would have said, <laughs> just forget it. But God had already promised that the seed of the woman would be what saves the new humanity that keeps that comes after the flood, and God keeps his promises. He never changes. It is God's love that draws us irresistibly toward him, but reject that same love, and you experience the righteous anger of God, the righteous anger of God. The word is wrath. God is a jealous God, which means he does not want his children hurt. Therefore, a society that turns from godliness to lust and evil and violence, that society, as in Noah's time, will experience God's wrath. So verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I've made them. It's not as if God sprung the flood on them unknowingly. Enoch prophesied for 300 years and Noah for at least 120 years. Uh, 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is uh, in Peter's uh, second letter. 
says Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So what was God to do? He could have turned everyone into a robot of righteousness. But no, amazingly, God wants to have a relationship with us that benefits us. He doesn't need us. But for some reason, which is inscrutable, he desires us to have a relationship with him. And then we have verse 8. This is an amazing verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, the, 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 the word favor is the word for grace, the first time it's found in the Bible. This is all of grace, God's favor. Noah was a sinner like us, but he knew God. Like Enoch, he walked with God. Even though his neighbors were thoroughly evil, Noah lived by faith. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6 and 7, and without faith it's impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we no longer fear a flood today. We've got a rainbow instead. God promises uh, that would never happen again. But we must pay attention to sin and not be drowned in its temptation. We live in demonic times, difficult times, dangerous times. And the only answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Today is much like the days of Noah. Many are living as if Jesus will not return anytime soon. The Bible requires we Christians live otherwise. And so verse 9 starts us out with another Ancestry.com. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. That's the first time in the Bible we have the word righteous. He was a righteous man, blameless. Now, this is really important. Among the people of his time. Don't forget what they were like. He was a righteous man, and he was blameless among the people of his time. Now, we know what they're like. And he walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, every time we have a baby dedication, I always, almost always say the same thing. I say, well, you know, here's a new baby. God isn't finished with us yet. Well, Noah had three children, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and God wasn't finished with them yet. Psalm 1 had not been written. Nevertheless, Noah lived by it. Psalm 1 reads, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That's a picture of Noah. Now, it also says he was blameless. The word can be translated wholehearted. I like that translation. It's a word regarding motive, motive, meaning that his commitment to God was total, 
Noah was a sinner like us, but he was a man of faith who believed God and proved it by his life. Because Noah believed God by faith, God imputed, you ever heard that word before? He imputed righteousness. God made him righteous. Faith with obedience is the only way anyone is saved. It's always been that way. Salvation today is by faith in Jesus, not by works, but by faith. And then when we believe God, righteousness is imputed to us. We're made righteous. We're justified just as if we had never sinned. Noah was blameless among the people of that day. This is a picture of one person set apart from everyone around him. I doubt we could exaggerate how difficult this would have been for Noah and an extension for his family. Remember, for all of these years now, before the ark, he's a preacher of righteousness. He's warning the people. Everybody in the world before the ark was finished would have known exactly what Noah was saying and what he was warning people about. Uh, he was being, no doubt he was being laughed at and ridiculed and ignored and all of this type of thing. But yet he still, he still was that righteous man who walked with God. And look at verse 11. In verse 11, this is an amazing verse. Now the earth, during this time with Noah, was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God, verse 12, saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Three times we hear the sound of the word, corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. The earth was corrupted, the people were corrupted, anarchy ruled, marriage was ruined, and people were worshiping other gods. The demonic realm ruled the people. The word for corrupted means completely destroyed, meaning it still exists, but it's a shadow of what it was meant to be. And by the way, this is very interesting. In verse 11, it says, now the earth was corrupt. I'm going to change to the Hebrew word in a moment. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of, and I know I'm pronouncing it right. I really checked it out. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of Hamas. That's the word. That's the word. And it's, by the way, the, the word and all of that, that's where all of that comes from. And God saw how corrupt the world had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God's wrath would simply be the obvious conclusion to what the people had done to themselves. Nevertheless, this becomes a strong warning for us today. In Luke's gospel, Jesus speaking again about the second coming, it reads this way. Jesus is speaking. When I return, he says, when the Son of Man returns, it, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat and the flood came and destroyed them all. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building, until the morning Lot left Sodom. But before Lot left Sodom, he went and told especially his relatives, you've got to get out of here. 
God's judgment's coming. They didn't believe him. They laughed at him. And then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up to the day, Jesus is saying, when I return, when I'm revealed, when the Son of Man comes back again, when, uh, when the Son of Man is revealed. God said he would not flood the earth again, but he did not say he would never regret starting over. God still has a plan. The new heaven and the new earth and the millennium, totally different than before Noah or after Noah. Now look at verse 13. This tells us about God's character. So God said to Noah, so now God's going to speak directly to Noah. Now, God doesn't just all of a sudden fly off the handle. He displays patience. Even for hundreds or thousands of years, he disperses grace. And in this case, God takes Noah into his confidence and tells him what is about to happen. You see, God is personal. He's caring. He's merciful and very patient. But he says, Noah... I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence, with Hamas. Because of them, I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. This is really interesting. Of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. Now, this is, this is something special. The word pitch is a word that means atonement, atonement. The pitch keeps the water from entering the ark so it can float. The ark was prepared for Noah to lift him out of this world of sin, and the pitch of the ark represented the atonement Jesus obtained for us when he died on the cross. Even the word ark, this is really awesome, the only other place we find this word is in Exodus chapter 2, describing the basket that Moses was placed in, baby Moses, to escape the wrath of the Pharaoh, which would have had him killed. And we could say that the baby Moses, who was supposed to die, voyaged to life like Noah. He was in an ark. Now, verse 15. This is how you're to build the ark. The ark is to be 400, I turned it to feet rather than cubits, uh, is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it, leaving below, all, below the roof an opening of eight, a, a cubit, 18 inches high, all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish but I'll establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. The word covenant is important. It's the first time this has been used in the Bible. You and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because in my study over the years, I've read all the different arguments about the ark or whether it could float or not or whether the size of it or... Uh, if the wood even existed in that day, it's amazing to read all this stuff. And I could spend at least two or three sermons going through all of the proofs. But I don't have to do that anymore because you can do it yourself in two ways I'll show you. 
And uh, one of the ways is by going to the ARCA counter in Kentucky. And some of you have been there. And everybody I've ever talked to that's been there, the first thing they say is, oh, you wouldn't believe it. And, and it's everything, every question you've ever had is answered. So what I've done, I'm going to give them a, a little bit of their time. So we'll have just over a minute and just have a quick look at what would happen if you went there. But now, before we show the video, uh, before we show the video, I just want to say that I took the time to look at some of the videos today. You don't have to go to Kentucky, although I now wish I could go. I'd like to go. But you can find out everything you'd ever want to know about the ark in detail on the website in the most amazing, interesting ways. You'll never be bored watching them. So Cheryl, show us that one video for a moment. Isn't that amazing? It's really something. Now, if you're the type that likes to read, I'm going to recommend a book, but you've got to want to read it. And so just put it up on the screen. It's the Genesis account, and it's written by Jonathan D. Sarfati, Ph.D., and it says, A Theological, Historical, and Scientific Commentary on Genesis 1 to 11. And I've loved reading it. It's full of Hebrew and all that, but you can work around that and, and read and find out all of these things. And uh, I, so if you're the type that you, ha you have to want to read it, it's not like bedtime reading where, oh, good, I can hardly wait. Uh, but uh, I, I'm reading it through. I've already had the book in hardcover lent to me by Michael, and uh, it's, I was just so fascinated by it that I put it on Kindle where everybody should read from. And anyhow, anyhow sorry. Um, my son, I'm not supposed to say that, I suppose, but... Yeah, she says, don't tell him. So I won't say anything that he was the one on the team that invented Kindle. But um, anyhow, so let's go on from there and we'll finish off. Verse 18, I'll go back to verse 18. But I will establish my covenant. That's the first time we find the word. I've already said that with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So the agreement or the covenant which is important here. 
the agreement of the covenant that God made with Noah was completely of God. It did not require anything of Noah except to believe and respond to God's commands. It was a covenant of grace. Plus, Noah not only knew he and his family would be survivors, but as Eric Kidner says, the bearer of God's promise for a new age. So he knew that. And then in verse 19, it reads, You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground. Now, this is really something. Will come to you. Now, you know, like, how does he get them all in there? God brings them. God's doing all of this. And, and, he, and so uh, they will come to you to be kept alive. Verse 21, you're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And then the final verse, I want to put it on the screen, is Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah believed God by faith without sight for 120 years. Hebrews chapter 11 again. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah... When warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we might ask the question, how did Noah condemn the world? The same way the creation condemns the world. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. God told Noah that only he and his family would be on the ark. The preaching of Noah... And the building of the ark became the condemnation of the people of Noah's day. The same way as the creation and the final judgment will be the condemnation of those who live life without taking God into account. Everyone will be speechless at the judgment seat when God asks them why the creation was not enough evidence for who he is. Noah was God's letter to the world around him in the same way the church in Corinth was Paul's letter of recommendation, and our lives are also written by God for the sake of the world. We're to be letters for others to see and hear the gospel. Uh, stand with me as we pray, and then we'll worship with another song. Father, I just, uh, I just love reading the book of Genesis, Father. And I'm just uh, overwhelmed at Noah's faith. And Father, as I 
just spent time just sitting down thinking what it would be like to spend decade after decade after decade after decade after decade as a person that is warning people of what is to come and knowing it's true and being ridiculed and, and not believed. And I'm certain that Noah really loved some of these people and wanted to see them saved. But none of them ever responded. Uh, Father, help all of us never to get discouraged but to keep talking because you've given us the Holy Spirit within us and you've given us a whole new hope where there's the possibility that anyone who will receive the Lord Jesus as Savior will be saved. And we are the ones that are to herald that, who, that are to speak that out, that are to live that out so others can come with us when we finally go into eternity and then come back and be on this earth for a thousand years. In Jesus' name, amen.